Today's episode focuses on the economics and politics of Bitcoin. If you are offended by strong language, small blocks, or stake, then this episode is certainly going to trigger you. And we've seen more retail investors. It's not just guys yeah. like Mike Novogratz who are talking about it. It seems like everyone is talking about it. It seems like we're pretty much already at taxi driver level, right, where your cab driver is recommending well, it to you. I kind of think that this is like the the um, the backwards or sort of most bubbles start with like something that Wall Street people get into and then they fan out into the world. And next thing you know, and of course, there's that famous scene in the big short where Steve Eisman hears about a stripper uh, buying and selling houses like, oh, it's a bubble. Here it's like going in the exact opposite direction. So there's tons of people out in the real world who have bought cryptocurrencies and guys like Mike Novogratz are still relatively rare. And they're like the one, you know, in the new thing, they'd be like the stripper. Welcome to the Noted Podcast, episode 0.3.0. I'm joined today with my co-host, Michael Goldstein. Howdy. We have a very special guest today, Saifedina Moose, coming to us from Lebanon. How are you, Saif? Very good, Pierre. Thank you so much for having me. This is going to be a lot of fun. So Safe has a book coming out soon. It's uh, You can pre-order on Amazon today. It will be out in February. Is that correct, Safe? Yep. What is the title of the book? The Bitcoin Standard, the Decentralized Alternative to Central Banking. Beautiful. All right. So we're going to dig into the content of this book today. We want to hear about what is the Bitcoin Standard? Why do we need it? What are the economic benefits or downsides that we expect from it? How is it going to affect culture? And we want to hear... Also, kind of on a personal side, uh, your your background, how you found Bitcoin, and how your views on Bitcoin evolved over time. Yeah, let's let's dive right in, uh, Michael. What's what's on your mind? What do you want to ask? Say first. Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to know. Yeah, how did you how did you get into Bitcoin? Well, I I was uh, an Austrian economist, and I was very interested in Austrian economics for uh, quite a while, and. Um, I don't exactly remember when I first heard of Bitcoin or how or from whom, but I think it was sometime in 2009 and 2010. And, um, you know, it was somewhere on the Internet in Austrian economics circles where people were mentioning it. And I looked into it, but, uh, you know, I kept on reading more and more about it. It took me a while to get how it works. And um, I was, I would say, you know, I, I, I was... I wouldn't say skeptical. I was supportive of the idea. I obviously thought it was going to be wonderful if it worked, but I wasn't quite sure that it could work initially. And it was only really until 2013 that I started to really become convinced, okay, this thing is uh, serious and it's not going away. Because I started understanding more about uh, how cryptography works and how uh, proof of work works and... uh, just the resilience of the network and how the and how it managed to survive so much stuff from 2009 to 2013. So I'd say 2013 was the year when I started really becoming a, um, a full fully fledged Bitcoiner. So it basically took not only understanding the the economics of sound money, but also understanding the the technology. Exactly. I mean, the economics would make you sympathetic to this, as I said earlier, but. Uh, it, it takes a lot of effort to, for somebody who's not very technically, uh, um, you know, I'm not very knowledgeable of things like cryptography and uh, networks and so on. So it took a while for, for, for Bitcoin's um, technical properties to sink in and for me to really understand uh, how, how resilient this thing is. How did you get interested in Austrian economics? Well, I was doing my PhD at Columbia University, um, which is not a hotbed of Austrian economics, although it is the place from which uh, Murray Rothbard had graduated. But uh, during that time, while I was doing my PhD, I started uh, thinking more critically about the sort of mathematics that we were doing and the sophisticated modeling of very complex systems. And so I started reading a little bit of Karl Popper and Nassim Taleb. And that led me, led me down the rabbit hole of Friedrich Hayek and then Mises and Rothbard and all the rest of them. 
And so for the last couple of years of my uh, grad school in uh, Columbia and New York, 2007, 8, and 9, I was was very interested in Austrian economics and learning and reading more and more about it. And I started attending the Austrian economics seminar at NYU. You know, from then on, obviously, it it, it made my PhD dissertation uh, rather uh, interesting and different from uh, what it would have, it, it would have been otherwise ran me into some sort of trouble with my committee but you know that's not important now it's all over but uh, yeah then once i graduated i was really only interested in reading more about monetary economics and austrian economics and uh, bitcoin was a very interesting uh, experiment live new experiment in this world so i wanted to get into it and learn more about it so uh you know with this it sounds like uh reading a lot of austrian economics got you uh interested in the idea of sound money uh, can you tell us a little bit about why sound money is important and how Bitcoin helps that? Yeah, so I mean, this is the main point of my book, and this is the reason why I'm interested in Bitcoin. And I think, you know, um, people have missed the point of Bitcoin when they talk about payments or microtransactions or uh, all these uh, quirky little use cases, which, you know, they might be fine and they, they're interesting, but. Uh, they are not what Bitcoin, I think, is going to, to offer. They're not Bitcoin's advantage. Bitcoin's advantage and, and the Bitcoin's value proposition is the fact that it is sound money. And it fits the bill for what qualifies as sound money. And it has the important monetary properties that made gold sound money for a very long time. And specifically, two things. Number one, it's that nobody can control the supply of Bitcoin. Nobody can arbitrarily increase it or decrease it. And secondly that the supply is, um, you know, it it doesn't grow at a very fast rate. It grows at a diminishing rate. So there's not going to be a very large increase in Bitcoin supply at any point in time. And I think those two things, if they could exist in any sort of asset, it would qualify it to gain a monetary role and it would uh, arguably gain a very uh, important monetary monetary role quickly. So uh, Bitcoin has these and also it has the advantage of being available to everybody anywhere with an internet connection all over the planet, which makes it a very, uh, very intriguing uh, prospect. Now, why is sound money important? In my opinion, the, the, the most important aspect of it is time preference. And this is a concept that I keep talking about in my, uh, in my book. It's one of the main reasons, but I think it's in my, it, it might be the most important in my opinion. And essentially, when, when people are able to save the fruits of their labor in something that will hold its value well into the future, it allows them to start lowering their time preference. This is what Hans Hermann Hoppe calls the initiation of the process of civilization it happens because people start lowering their time preference. You know, the shift from being people who just hunt with our own hands to moving towards developing tools for hunting and then tools for cooking and tools for uh, processing uh, our uh, food allows us to become more productive. It allows us to start producing more output per hour. And the only way that you can do that is through investment, through capital accumulation. And the only way that you can do that is through delayed gratification. You have to give up on consumption right now in order to invest your labor into effort that is not going to pay you off right now, but it will pay you off, uh, it'll pay off into the future. So this really is the, the basis of human civilization. It's what makes us human beings, the ability to store our value into the future and to think into the future. And the easier it is for us to find good stores of value, the more likely we are to think about the future, the more likely we are to plan for the future. And that leads to more capital accumulation, which leads to higher productivity, which allows us to live much better lives. So the the process of civilization, really, the way that people become civilized is through lower time preferences and capital accumulation. And the process of de-civilization, the opposite of civilization, the destruction of civilization, is what happens when people have high time preferences. And as a result, they start consuming their capital. First of all, you know, you, you stop accumulating more capital and then you start running down the, uh, the capital that you have, which decreases your productivity, which ruins your quality of life. So this is uh, one of the most important aspects of it. And then, of course, it's also important because it can, uh, when, you, when you have a sound form of money, it allows for trade across larger areas, 
people from all over the world can use it as opposed to um, the crappy kinds of uh, national monies that uh, you know people will only use because they're forced to use them and they don't travel well across borders and they fluctuate in value and they make trade across the world highly unpredictable and, and uh, uncertain because of its fluctuation in value. It's a, it's a terrible situation what fiat money has done in that regard that uh, as a businessman, say, you, where you're planning... Um, where you're planning your, say, industrial production of a good, you know, no matter how good you are at your job and how good your plans are, uh, none of it really matters in front of the fluctuations of uh, exchange rates that could wipe it out, you know. So if you're a British producer and the British pound crashes after Brexit, you know, that can completely alter all of your business uh, plans because all of the price of the goods that you import as inputs now has changed and the price of the goods that you export as uh, as, uh, as an exporter has now changed for your consumers. So it wreaks havoc on producers. It wreaks havoc on global trade. It stops people from accumulating capital. All of that is uh, what uh, unsound money does or government money or fiat money. And, uh, you know, fortunately, we have Bitcoin, which is an exit strategy from that. It allows you individually to just opt out of that. And the more people opt out of that crappy system and the more people join the Bitcoin system, the more we move towards a world in which Bitcoin functions as a global reserve currency because it has that property of sound money and because its network offers international clearance uh, immediate final settlement, not immediate, but I mean, within an hour or so, final settlement, I think that makes it more and more likely to grow in importance as a global reserve asset. And for people to begin to deal with it um, as as a monetary asset in the same way that the gold standard was dealt with towards the 19th century. And we already see this happening right now, because if you look around today, the vast majority of Bitcoin transactions don't actually happen on chain. So all the Bitcoin exchanges and all the gambling websites and all the uh, and many of the even uh, consumers and purchases and uh, many of the websites that utilize Bitcoin or that will denominate their transactions in Bitcoin, they will carry out their transactions on their own databases and then they will only do the final settlement on the Bitcoin blockchain. So if you join a Bitcoin gambling site, the only on-chain transactions are the ones where you send them your Bitcoins and then when you uh, withdraw your Bitcoins out. But while your money is on their uh, website, you're betting and gaining and uh, losing money all the time and making many transactions, but all of them don't involve a movement on the Bitcoin blockchain. So I think we're going to see more and more of this until Bitcoin continues to grow in terms of its value as well as in terms of its importance and the number of people who use it to the point where people need to start thinking of it as a global reserve asset rather than as a payment technology or other, or as a you know silly uh, experiment. So how, how would you respond to folks who argue that that goes against what was in the white paper and it goes against maybe the vision that they project onto Bitcoin? Well, I mean, I don't have to respond. I'm not, uh, I'm not here to tell them that you have to do this or not. I'm just reporting how I look at it working out. And, uh, you know, I'm not advocating this in as much as I am uh, expressing how I see things evolving. The reality is that, uh, you know, I, I don't like the whole discussion of Satoshi's original vision because it doesn't even matter, you know. Viagra was first invented as a uh, medicine for, what was it, baldness or heart disease or something like that. Turned out to work much better as a boner uh, fixer. And so, you know, nobody talks about the original vision of the Viagra inventors. It just does a better job as a uh, boner fixer. And that's what people are going to do. So, you know, your visions matter to you. So I don't have to respond to those. But uh, if I, you know, I I just say that... um, it's the, the the entire structure of the blockchain makes it completely unfeasible that you would have every transaction in the world done on a global ledger that is shared between everybody on a peer-to-peer system. I mean, it's just completely insane to imagine all the billions of transactions taking place every day all over the world will be recorded on every computer. It's, uh, you know, no matter how powerful computers become, it's always going to involve an enormous amount of ways to do that for the simple reason that, you know, you don't need to have the recordings of everybody everywhere in the world. 
this sort of system is always going to involve so much more power consumption than any kind of system that relies on some uh, type of centralization. So in my opinion, um, whatever the original intention, what Bitcoin offers as digital cash is, you know, the traditional term for cash was, uh, in, it referred to uh, gold, it referred to money for final settlement. Cash was money that was a bearer instrument, that the person who owns it, if you have it on you, that's it. It settles debt. It's not something that you need to settle with other people, through other people, through other intermediaries. This is what Bitcoin does, but you know, in our world today, cash means money that you use to pay coffee. And I think this is part of the misunderstanding that a lot of people uh, have about this. And it's, you know, it's a dangerous thing because it leads to whiny rage quits, as we've seen many, many times over <laughs> in this uh, space. Do you, think, do you think this understanding of what cash is comes from us having lived under unsound money for over a century now? Yeah, I mean, people just think cash is just what you buy your uh, stupid bullshit with. And um, it, it, it had a different meaning initially. It meant money that was final settlement as opposed to checks or other forms of, uh, of payment. In this regard, um, I think Bitcoin during its growth period right now is going to be very valuable for uh, people to get around the transactions that, you know, to, to do transactions that get around government controls, get around inflation, buy things that are illegal or so on. It's valuable in this regard, but I think over time it's, it's, it's far more valuable than just allowing somebody to buy their weed without their government finding out. Not that I even think that's a good use for Bitcoin because it's, uh, it's arguably better to just buy with cash, but uh, the, the individual transactions, I, I think, are just going to be priced out because Bitcoin's transactions are far more valuable than just individual consumer payments. And so the level of security that Bitcoin provides is extremely high. It is not a level of security that your coffee seller wants or needs. And it's not a level of security that you need on your coffee because, you know, if one out of every 100 customers or five out of every 100 customers will defraud the coffee seller, that's not the end of the world. He'll, he, he'll still uh, continue to operate. He doesn't need to run a global ledger that includes every transaction from everybody in order to prevent fraud once out of every 100 times on a $5 cup of coffee. So I think it's just Bitcoin is going to continue to offer the possibility of cash settlement, final settlement for people. And it's just going to, as more and more people adopt it, the value of these transactions is going to continue to rise that eventually... It's, you know, e even assuming that nothing changes in Bitcoin structure and we continue with this current structure of 300, 400,000 transactions a day, eventually those are probably going to become the 300,000 most important transactions in the world. They're going to be carried out on the Bitcoin blockchain because it's the most secure and fastest way of uh, global final settlement. It's faster than settling through central banks. It's faster than settling with uh, gold and it's far safer. And uh, so all of these final uh, settlement payments, I think, you know, we're, we're going to climb our way up in terms of Bitcoin transactions, in terms of the size and the value of the transactions, that the blockchain is only going to always be, eventually is going to be just for the most important transactions. And so this is really, I think, how Bitcoin can scale in that we're going to get technical solutions, things maybe like Lightning Network or second layer payments and with cryptographic support to prevent fraud and cryptographic checks you know this this is what's going to be built over the next 5 10 20 years and that will allow um, smaller payments to be done on second layer channels while the blockchain itself continues to be reserved for the most important transactions so we're seeing some of these level 2 solutions like lightning and it is 100% reserve are you concerned at all about Fractional reserve banking developing due to the lack of on-chain scaling, or are you more in the free banking school of Austrian economics? Um, no, I, I don't think it'll emerge. I'm not concerned about it, and I don't think that we'll get fractional reserve banking with uh, Bitcoin. I think it'll be much harder for it to emerge. Um, I mean, as, as an economist, I'm just excited about it as an experiment, and I would not really be... Um, I wouldn't be very disappointed if I were to be proven wrong and if people like uh, George Selgin and Larry White, the, you know, the free banking school, they turn out to be correct and we get uh, fractional reserve banking on Bitcoin. 
you know, I'm, 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 I'm just, I'm happy to watch it unfold whichever way. However, if, if I would bet on it, I'd say no. I don't think that you could get fractional reserve banking on Bitcoin because uh, for fractional reserve banking to be sustainable, it needs a uh, lender of last resort. And that lender of last resort needs to be able to increase the money supply, to print money, to essentially bring into physical existence um, or not necessarily physical, but in, you know the creation of the money to support the bank's creation of credit when the banks run into liquidity problems. So this is why the gold standard was abandoned in the first place. People left the gold standard in 1914 and in 1920s and in 1930s because it was you know the famous uh, word by Barry, uh, what's his name, Iken Green, the golden fetters, because it restricted governments from printing all the money that they needed to bail out the banking system. Um, but the problem was not gold. The problem was that they tried fractional reserve banking. And so I think with Bitcoin, it's going to be much harder to do it than under gold because gold was uh, gold needed far more centralization in terms of its settlement. And this might sound like a contradiction with, that was, with what I was saying earlier, but I don't think it is because um, with gold, well, with gold, you know, final settlement involves moving physical stuff around. And that's just not very uh, convenient or easy or cheap to do. So you can imagine in order to um, economize in the cost of final settlement, banks became more and more centralized in that there was always a central bank in each city and then in each uh, country. And then these central banks effectively started uh, cooperating across the world and cleaning with one another. So under the gold standard, you had only a scope for a very few number of clearance payments every year where you're moving physical gold from one country to the other. And so all the payments that people needed to do were essentially second layer payments and only a few payments every year were first layer payments. But with Bitcoin, we can do 400,000 first layer final settlement payments a day. And that's arguably far more than what was done with physical gold between banks in a year. And so if you do that, you know, you will not need a central banking system that is anywhere near as centralized as the central banking system under the gold standard towards the end of the uh, 19th century. Because there, the nature of gold and the expensive settlement in it meant that you needed uh, you needed uh, very, uh, very few central banks at the end of the day. But I think with Bitcoin, and this is, I, I do the math in my book, we can think of it as uh, if with 400,000 transactions, you can have almost 1,000 banks, 1,000 central banks around the world that are able to offer final settlement in, uh, in Bitcoin. And so 1,000 banks, you know, is far more decentralized than the current system we have, which is essentially one central bank that runs the entire global uh, monetary system, and that is the uh, U.S. Federal Reserve. And effectively, all the world's other central banks work for it um, because they clear their payments through it, more or less. So with Bitcoin, we'd have far more possibility for many more central banks to emerge. Now, I'm not making a prediction in my book saying... Um, how this is going to evolve it could be that the world's current central banks will start using bitcoin and then they'll turn into these final settlement institutions but i think more likely it'll be that uh, the banks and the financial institutions that are that will emerge to settle in bitcoin and to just run with bitcoin and with cryptographic uh, uh, proof and with um, with with all sorts of uh, new technologies for settlement of payments completely separate from the old relics of the fiat system i think these are just going to continue to grow into that role of the central bank and you know fortunately uh, all the uh, real central banks are just going to continue to not understand what is going on because from their perspective this is just uh, stupid um, internet games for people who want to buy weed this is all that they can see in this but in reality, you know, it's it's going to continue to appreciate, I think, and the transactions are just going to continue to become more and more important. One day they're going to wake up and realize, you know, this is a significant chunk of the world economy. And it's a central bank, effectively, a central banking system that is completely outside our central banking system and outside of our control. And more and more people are moving into it because it's more efficient, it's more rewarding, and most importantly, it has better money. So I can hear some in our audience kind of outraged because they place so much importance on the notion of trustlessness, you know, not having to trust 
any third party. If your prediction is true, then that means that we would have to trust some third parties. Even if we have some cryptographic enhancements so that we can reduce the trust, I think, but do you see what I'm getting at in that there's kind of an ideology of trustlessness in Bitcoin? It's an intention with what you're describing. No, I see. I, I, um, I, I don't think it's that much intention. And also, you know, much as, much as I would agree or disagree with it, I think the reality is that, um, and, and this is why the uh, big blocker people are getting so agitated with how Bitcoin is evolving and they can't, it, it won't bend to the, this vision of, you know, the Gavin Anderson vision of everybody having a million Satoshis on their phone and sending them to everybody else at all times for very low transactions. The economics of it is just not going to work. And the reality is transaction costs are going to continue to rise. So the transactions are going to become more important. Now, when it comes to the issue of trustlessness, I think, you know, what I'm saying is not going, is, is not go flying in the face of these cypherpunk ideals and, you know, getting around third parties. It's just what it's saying is there are more important things than eliminating the third party from your uh, transaction for buying weed. And that you're going to end up, because of Bitcoin, you know, you're going to end up being free to buy your weed or to escape capital controls and all of those things. Not because you can make that transaction itself, but because Bitcoin as a form of sound money is going to kill the fiat money that funds the government that is able to continue to impose all these ridiculous restrictions on people. So if you look at the world in the 19th century, there was no war on drugs in the 19th century. You could buy cocaine from, uh, from pharmacies and it was not such a big deal. And because there was no war on drugs, people weren't getting killed because they're doing cocaine. And people weren't getting shot because they're doing cocaine and it wasn't such a big deal. So if you wanted to buy cocaine, it wasn't a, it wasn't a problem, you know. Um, and you can see this in, in many aspects of individual liberty at that point. And I think, um, you know, this invention is extremely valuable, but I think it would... Uh, it, it won't work for it to just be valuable for you to be able to perform your own individual transactions because it's just going to become more and more important. But by being able to make the most important transactions in the world trustless, that's what's going to give us the freedom. It's going to bankrupt anybody who uses fiat money in order to control other people's lives. And I think, you know, the, the reality is under a fiat money standard, and, you know, we didn't discuss this enough. Uh, this is another major issue with sound money, which I didn't get to in this discussion, but I do get into in the book. Fiat money is the fuel for totalitarian governments and sound money is the cure. Every totalitarian government that has ever existed, I would say, has almost always used fiat money because otherwise, if you were using sound money, if you were using gold and you were wasting your gold on stupid bullshit like telling people what they can smoke and what they can eat and what they should do or what they shouldn't do or controlling their economic activities. This is highly destructive economically. And so you would run out of your gold very quickly. But if you have a printing press, it makes it far easier for you to continue to indulge in these kind of stupid things as a government. And so this is why, you know, the 20th century is the century of mass government stupidity all over the world because government stupidity had an unlimited printer that they continued to abuse until it ran out. And I think if we just take that printer out of the hands of government, then that will completely castrate and defang the, the, the ability of government to control people's lives. And so this is really where I see the importance of Bitcoin. I don't disagree with the vision of, you know, trustlessness and uh, um, disintermediation and getting over, uh, getting around uh, trusted third parties and getting around government restrictions. I, I, on the contrary, I like it so much that I think it's going to be, yeah, and I think Bitcoin is powerful enough that it's not just going to allow this to happen for the small number of users who use Bitcoin directly. It's going to probably happen at a much larger scale by making inflation and, and um, by making government finance very, very difficult and restricting governments to taxation, restricting governments to having to charge people uh, for the stupid bullshit that they do. And once people realize, you know, th they have to pay for those kinds of stupid bullshit, they won't. So you, you say that 
fiat money has been fueling totalitarian governments throughout the 20th century. And something else that you go into your book is that the rise of unsound money has also fueled various forms of cultural decline. Can you explain how sound money affects culture? Yeah, I mean, for me, I think it's the connection is time preference. Um, when people have a low time preference, they're able to engage in long-term projects. When people have a high time preference, they can only think in terms of immediate gratification. And I think if you look at uh, culture and art over the different periods, I think it's, it's really hard to dismiss this. I'm no art critic and I'm no art expert and I'm no architecture critic or uh, architect. But, you know, I do have eyes and they do have the ability to notice things. And, you know, you can't help but notice that people like Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci and the masterpieces that they used to create uh, when gold was money, you don't see things like that today. When you think about who are the major artists of the world today, you know, the, the most important modern artists are degenerate people like, uh, I don't know, I can't, let's not even mention their names, screw them. But, you know, a bunch of idiots drawing a bunch of nonsense on a bunch of mattress that requires the level of skill that a five-year-old could do. The entire freaking masterpiece takes 15 minutes to finish and then gets sold for $50 million. And it's, it, it, it's, it's idiotic uh, to, to look at it, you know, just... Just the other day, you know, I was on Google, you go in Google image search and you just search for modern art and you see the first 100 images and you look at them and it's all just scribblings that could be out of fifth grade art class and takes absolutely no skill or talent to produce any of this garbage. It's just people, you know, littering mattresses with colors. And then you look at Renaissance art, you do a Google image for Renaissance art and every single one of those pictures take, took years to complete, it took years of skill and mastery for the artist to be able to arrive at that. And so, you know, you look at music as well, you look at the works of uh, classical music, you compare them to modern music, three minute songs of just animalistic noises that appeal to your uh, deepest sort of animalistic instincts. Compare that to the sort of music that, you know, Bach and Beethoven used to work on, uh, used to produce. I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, eras of unsound money produce this kind of degenerate art because people in this sort of society are unable to plan for the future and unable to think of the future. And, you know, artists today, very few artists even have any conception of craft, any conception of learning a skill set. I mean, the level of skill required to produce a Mark Rothko painting is something that any 10-year-old could produce without any training in art, you know, just give them a brush, give them 15-minute instruction, you know, this is how you make this red bullshit and just a little bit of orange next to it and a little bit of yellow there, and there you go, that's a $50 million painting. You know, if you saw it on the street while you were walking down the street and you saw this on the side, you would not look at it. There's nothing interesting or attractive in it. No work went into it. It's, it's, it's not really worth, uh, worth anyone's attention. But in today's world, you know, art critics and uh, also government's role in promoting art and government's role in promoting all of those things has turned all of this garbage into art and people pay for it because they want to look like they're artists or that, like they understand art. And uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a coincidence. I think you can also see this with architecture. It's quite interesting. If you look around pretty much anywhere you travel in the world, you know, the nice buildings were the ones that were built in the 19th century. And then the 20th century was the century of ugly industrial cookie cutter boxes that uh, cram the cities and traffic jams and ugly highways and uh, just, you know, the, the, the city has been destroyed by central planning, by high time preference uh, government policies and people's inability to think about the long term. People in the 19th century used to build homes that last till today. People today are building, you know, plastic bullshit that will fall apart very quickly. Yeah, very, very powerful. So a lot of Bitcoiners came from a world of intense, you know, gold buggery. We're all uh, a lot of a lot of Austrians. We all loved Ron Paul and ending the Fed and restoring the gold standard. But as soon as we heard about Bitcoin, we kind of we, we threw all of that by the wayside and we just want digital gold now. Do you see a role for physical gold in a Bitcoin world? You know, I don't know. This is another one of those questions where uh, I can't really definitively answer and I'm really looking forward to watching how it plays out over time. Um, so I can't really answer definitively, but I do have some speculations and I uh, mentioned some of these in the book. I think, you know, the, uh, 
the, the, the physical aspect of gold, the fact that it is physical money, I think might give it value for a very long time. And I think that's, you know, we're a very, very long way away from a world in which everybody is able to understand uh, cryptography and to understand how to operate Bitcoin and to trust that. Um, now, of course, you know, the main point of my book is that most people don't even, might not even need to if central banks just adopt it as money. You know, you'll be using Bitcoin and it can be just paper money backed by Bitcoin or um, cards, debit cards backed by Bitcoin. But still, you know, it's going to be a while, I think. So on an operational level, I think maybe gold has a way, has a reason for surviving. But on a, um, in terms of the monetary policy, you know, Bitcoin's growth rate, Bitcoin supplies growth rate will drop below that of gold in the next few years. So you would imagine it would become... Um, more attractive than gold as a store of value and gold is going to become a little bit like silver um, the new silver essentially gold could be Bitcoin silver basically that's also another possibility however I think you know I I think the most cogent uh, argument against a monetary standard based on Bitcoin that I've come across and I'm not saying this is convincing but I think it has come from to me from uh, I'm, I'm not sold on it yet, but some of the uh, gold bugs that I know um, will tell me this. And I think the uh, gold is very desirable because of its chemical properties for industry and for jewelry. And those two things will just always be there and there will always be demand for gold. You know, even if even if Bitcoin kills all of the demand for gold as money, um, electronics on their own will just lap up all that lost demand, you know. Um, in many, many industrial fields, gold, is, gold would be the ideal metal to use in so many different things. And the only reason it doesn't get used is because it's very expensive. So if we witness the world in which, let's say, gold gets massively demonetized and all of the central banks of the world sell all of their gold or just hand it out even to uh, industry, you know, industry will lap it all up very quickly. If they sell it, the price will drop initially, but the um, elasticity of demand is uh, pretty low. People will just continue to buy more gold and use it in industry. And so this, this will effectively, this is really what gives uh, gold its stability and value over time. This is what makes gold maintain its purchasing powers so that, you know, you see stories of, uh, you, you, look at, you look at old historical texts and people talk about prices of things in terms of gold and you see they're more or less uh, similar across all times and places. For instance, one cow has always been worth about an ounce of gold. And this is true today. It's true today everywhere. And it's been true for most of the human history, obviously with some variation, but you know, it's quite remarkable that it's always within the same range. And so I think the reason for this stability is the fact that the industrial demand for gold because of its chemical properties is always there acting as a massive sponge to, um, uh, ameliorate the excesses of uh, changes in supply and demand for the monetary role for gold. So if people use, more people use uh, gold as money, fewer people will use gold for industry. And if the opposite happens, more gold goes into industry and less goes into monetary uses. And in both cases, the variation in the value of the, of the gold doesn't change much. And this this, I think, is something that Bitcoin might struggle with, at least in the medium, in the, in the short term and in the medium term, because um, Bitcoin doesn't really have any other sort of application except for running, yeah, yeah, ex except for running the Bitcoin network itself. And so the demand for Bitcoin as a token for paying the Bitcoin transaction fee is intrinsically linked to the demand for Bitcoin as a medium of exchange or as a store of value. And so the volatility of Bitcoin, I think, is going to be with us for a while, which might, which might open up a place, a role for gold to continue to maintain its monetary status. I mean, you know, we, when you think about monetary competition in abstract terms and in, uh, you know, game theoretic terms, it, you would expect that there would be one winner. But the reality is that never in history did the world have one form of money. The closest we came was the international gold standard, but still, even then, many people used silver and some parts of the world even used uh, other kinds of uh, things, uh, other kinds of objects as money. So um, we, we might not necessarily kill off gold. Uh, you know, Bitcoin might not kill off gold. Gold might maintain its role as some sort of unit of account 
and Bitcoin is used for settlement. Or, um, but you know, of course, on the other hand, the the limit in the supply of Bitcoin, I think, in the long run, is just going to uh, it's 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 more likely to uh, give Bitcoin the monetary role, whether it's stable or not. I still think you know Bitcoin has got enough. Uh, it has, has, has got enough strength in terms of its ability to provide final settlement and in terms of its monetary policy that it should be able to win out. But, you know, the, the, these are predictions that, uh, these are speculations. I don't make them as prediction. And, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to see how, uh, how things unfold over time. So you mentioned monetary competition. How will altcoins play out? Do you think that they will have a role in competing against Bitcoin or have specialized functions? No, absolutely not. Um, basically, I mean, the way that I see it, Bitcoin will fail or succeed on its own merits and its own terms. It may yet fail for whatever reason, um, but it, if it succeeds or if it fails, I think uh, altcoins are completely irrelevant. They're, they're just completely and utterly irrelevant to me in particularly because um, you know, if you think of Bitcoin as being a payment mechanism, or if you think of Bitcoin as being a payment system, or a uh, you know for a platform for microtransactions, then sure, you might find some altcoin out there with a three-second block time that is more convenient for whatever uh, microtransaction thing that you want. But I really don't think any of these business cases are extremely convincing, and most importantly. Uh, I mean, uh, 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 any of these business cases are convincing for a blockchain structure. So anything that all of these altcoins want to claim to be doing is far more easily and efficiently and uh, done using centralized systems. You don't need any of this um, blockchain cargo cult engineering for any of the bullshit that these people are talking about. You know, you don't need it for anything. We already have all of the crap that they talk about as you know, our altcoin is going to do this and this and this and that. We already have mechanisms for doing all of those things. There have been people doing these things for hundreds of years, and there's a state of the art in these things. You know, whether it's databases or whatever it is, and there's a state of the art, and the people are doing them. And you know, you're not just going to come and revolutionize everything by copying Bitcoin's design. I, you know, after all of this time, we look at all altcoins. The most important reason why I think they're all completely irrelevant and essentially worthless in my mind is that the only reason Bitcoin matters is that nobody controls its monetary policy. That's it. Bitcoin's not the fastest payment mechanism. It's not the most efficient. It's definitely not the most user-friendly. You know, nobody uses Bitcoin for the great customer experience. There's no customer service line where you can call and you know demand your money back if things don't go the way you want. Nobody uses it for the convenience or because it's you know it, it's not the Apple iPhone of uh, currency and money. It is far from it. It is, it, it is important because its monetary policy is out of anybody's control. And that's it. That's why all of this energy is being wasted, well, not wasted, is being spent on proof of work. And that's why all of this um, money is spent on building all of these processing uh, units, the ASICs. And all of that because Bitcoin is sound money and because its monetary policy is important. That's what matters. And that's because nobody can control it. And Bitcoin has proved that nobody can control it because for nine years, we've had people come and go with ideas of how to change it and how to edit it and how to uh, improve it. And we've had you know, massive media campaigns orchestrated by people in order to try and change one tiny little parameter in Bitcoin. And they've all gloriously failed at it. And this really is what drove the point home to people like me or and is driving the point home more to people that look this isn't something that can just be edited tomorrow there's there's no group of 10 hackers worldwide who could get together and decide let's double the money supply this thing is the money supply is set in stone and it's valuable only because it's set in stone and it's valuable only because everybody agrees to play by this rule system's rules which are set in stones and so if you start off a new coin or a new fork of Bitcoin, which starts off with a bunch of people sitting in a room deciding, all right, let's make this new coin and then let's make it grow and let's uh, foster it. You're already starting off with the own, without the only thing that matters in Bitcoin. You know, it's at the end of the day, there's more than a thousand shit coins out there today. And none of these would matter. None of these would, we would ever hear of if it wasn't for the fact that there was an active group of people who actively promote this. 
Those people, you know, they came up with the code, they made the shitcoin, they bought the PR in all of these dumb uh, magazines that are just uh, publishing all of the PR as if it's actually real. They invented the stupid buzzwords about, you know, uh, Turing completeness or whatever, all of this nonsense that the altcoin peddlers are selling. Somebody has to be there in order to invent this bullshit and promote it and sell it and actively mine the currency and hold the coins and program the software. So essentially have all of the constituents of the Bitcoin ecosystem, which are in the Bitcoin ecosystem adversarial to one another. And that adversarial relationship is what keeps us, keeps the monetary policy set in stone. You have none of that with all of the altcoins. You have nothing adversarial in there. You just have one group of people sitting together and deciding everything from the code to the monetary policy to everything else. And so it's completely pointless to number, you know, this is, you know, number one, it's completely pointless to have all of this blockchain structure and proof of work and uh, all of this automated monetary policy. If you still have a bunch of people who could get together and change everything. And secondly, you could do whatever it is that you want to do without having to utilize that structure anyway. So none of, none of these currencies will do anything other than what Bitcoin does. And after eight, nine years, we can safely say that because so far, none of these currencies has done anything more than just offer a, a, a payment network similar to what Bitcoin offers. Nothing else. You know, none of the other functions. We've been watching them all on Twitter. We've been seeing them all on all their releases, press releases and all the garbage that they publish. Zero revenue has been made by any of these things for anything different from what Bitcoin does. They're all just purely Bitcoin knockoff with a bunch of worthless, irrelevant bells and whistles on them to make them look like they're in any way different um, from Bitcoin or specialized. So they're never going to do anything other than Bitcoin and they're never going to be Bitcoin because they're controlled by somebody. And if you want money that is run by committee, you know, that's perfectly fine. I can understand that there are people out there who think Bitcoin's monetary policy is stupid. I prefer to have a money with a bunch of people controlling it. Well, that's fine. But, you know, there's the, the, there are already hundreds of fiat currencies that have that. And if you want to have a currency that is controlled by a bunch of people, it's completely insane to build it on a blockchain structure. It's just a complete waste of resources. And, you know, the reason we've had this bubble is just it's, it's, it's in the aftertale of Bitcoin's rise where, um, you know, people are just so amazed by what Bitcoin is doing. And they, it, it, it's, it's the generation that expects for every Coca-Cola there's going to have to be a Pepsi and for every McDonald's there's a Burger King. So there's a Bitcoin. Oh, well, now, of course, there's going to be an Ethereum and a Litecoin and all of this stuff. But no, it's, you know, if Bitcoin was a space rocket, these things are cardboard cutouts of a space rocket. They look like the space rocket from the outside. And if you don't know how a space rocket looks like or how a space rocket works, then you look at them and you think they're the same. But only one of these can fly and the cardboard cutout is not going to fly. Cardboard cutout, these, these things, if they ever become used seriously as money, it'll be trivial for governments to shut them down. You just round up the 10 people who are going on about, you know, how we are going to transform everything and everything and just put them in a room, put a gun to their head and tell them, you know, change the monetary policy. And that's it. So, yeah, the, you know, uh, as you say, Pierre, <laughs> altcoins, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Completely irrelevant. I, I, I hate talking about them even because, you know, we were talking about important stuff and now we're talking about stupid games and their stupid prizes. <laughs> want to get to important things uh, i'm sure everyone listening would love to hear more about uh the way you eat and the way i eat for that matter you talked about how sound unsound money led to degradations in culture in economics in politics etc can you explain how you think the same forces may have led to poorer nutrition and health yeah, this was this was a part that I wanted to include in my book, but I thought it required far more research and it needed a, a bigger uh, it, it needed a far bigger project. So I decided I'm going to leave it aside for a while and I want to research this properly and then maybe write something uh, about it. I think there's definitely a relationship between the monetary standard and the um, malnutrition that happens to people. And I think first of all, you know, the, the biggest misconception people have about uh, health in the West is that uh, people are obese and obesity is a uh, 
is a disease of affluence that people are uh, sick and obese and they get diabetes because uh, they're so rich they can afford a lot of food and this is this this is a very very sad um, uh, <laughs> very sad rationalization it's like the it's like the guy who can't get any uh, girl to talk to them who thinks you know I'm I'm just too good looking for everybody <laughs> to talk to me you know if it makes you feel better about yourself you could say that but the reality is you're not affluent and the reason you're obese is that you're actually malnourished in other words obesity is actually a symptom of malnourishment if you don't eat enough animal meat and animal protein and animal fat your body will be effectively in starvation mode and then it will binge on all of the junk that it finds and it will eat as much junk as it can and then you will get into an addictive relationship with the sugar in the junk and then it will, your body will just store all of that fat in order to make you um, in order to basically fill you up with the, with the fat that you're not getting from the food from eating animal meat. So if you look at how people have been eating uh, over the last 50 years in the US for instance you see that the quantity of beef has been either stable or going down it's, it's been going down relatively and people are eating more soy and more corn and more of all these terrible grains that are extremely bad for us and extremely bad for us at big doses or at small doses. They're just very, very counterproductive to health. And I think there's a relationship between that and money. And, um, you know, it's worth investigating this deeper. But if you look at uh, what happened in the 1970s when the U.S. Uh, closed the gold exchange window, or what people think of as going off the gold standard, although they'd gone off the gold standard much earlier. But uh, in 1971, they removed the final link between gold and the dollar. And then the value of the dollar uh, plummeted, or um, and that expressed itself in, in very high inflation. But of course, no government has ever admitted to messing around with this currency, and it's always the fault of everything else in the universe. So the reason that everything, the price of everything was rising, you know, there were individual reasons to uh, justify that given by the government. Well, the oil crisis in the Middle East and something or the other, but of course, none of that matters compared to the monetary cause of it. So the price of everything was rising because the value of the dollar was dropping because they were printing dollars like crazy. So what did Nixon do at that time? There's a guy called Earl Butts, you may have heard of him, and he was the Secretary of Agriculture. And he was put in charge of the agricultural program in the U.S. And he was given the express mission of making more food and making food cheaper. And since then, he drove the USDA's policy of, um, he, he used to tell farmers, you, you know, get, go big or go home. Everything has to be bigger, faster, better. You know, he, he, wanted, he hated the notion of a small farmer who had his own plot of land and grew his own food and his own cattle or small ranchers. He wanted mass operations for the production of wheat and corn, and in particular corn. And so the way that inflation was fought, the way that the numbers for inflation were fought was not by reducing the printing of money, which is the root cause, but by providing massive subsidies to agriculture to produce to mass produce food at a very low cost and you might think that's a good thing except that the, what ended up happening is you know they're they're in order to <clears throat> I'm sorry in order to make the food so cheap effectively it was very low on nutrients and very high on sugar and junk and so this i think is a very important cause of why nutrition went in the US went down the road of just more grains and more uh, junk away from actual food. And so, you know, if you think about it, people talk about, well, there's no inflation because look at the CPI is 2% or 3%. And that's just completely ridiculous because the notion of the CPI, the CPI is a mathematical operation. You know, nobody who understands how math works can possibly believe that the CPI is mathematically valid in any way. Because the CPI measures the average price of goods that are being paid and how much people are paying for the goods that they're buying but people's own purchasing decisions themselves depend on the prices in other words you know people are always going to be spending a set amount of money every month right assuming assuming everything is constant you and i are going to spend the same amount of money next month than we did this month but if the price of everything goes up but the price of everything doubles we're still going to be spending the same amount of money, but we're just going to be buying less uh, lower quality stuff. 
And so the consumer price index stays the same. Yeah, but the actual nutrient density of the food that they're able to acquire for that money drops dramatically and thus everyone becomes unhealthy and sick. Exactly. So it used to be that, you know, if you look at if you look at the inflation, if you look at price numbers, it used to be there was a time in the US where you could buy a ribeye steak for one dollar and then you could buy a burger for one dollar. But now you can't even, you know, you can barely buy a soy burger patty for one dollar. So if you look at it, well, look, there's no inflation. As long as you're as long as you don't mind the difference between a ribeye and a burger and a soy burger, and, you know, you're still paying $1 for your lunch and there's no inflation. But in reality, you went from eating ribeyes to eating soy. And we know what happens when you eat soy. Very, very bad things happen when you eat soy. It's poison. It's not food. It's malnutrition. And it destroys, you know, particularly for men, it destroys your manhood. And so, you know, people have been shifting away from eating proper meat. And in particular, meat is the most important one because it's the most valuable nutrient dense food that we can get meat is vilified meat is, you're being told you don't shouldn't eat meat you know stick to eating all the cheap stuff eat soy vegetarianism all of these uh, um, <laughs> peasant morality ideologies that are telling you about how it's much better for the planet if you eat the stuff that makes you sick all the time and people are moving more and more towards eating that crap and that allows us to think oh well look you know prices haven't gone up i'm still having my lunch for one dollar except you know it has very little nutrients left in it i think i think there's really a very strong connection with the monetary aspect of it and um i think with time we're going to see you know if bitcoin does indeed kill fiat money and it does indeed kill the managerial state and it does kill the usda's ability to centrally plan agriculture. I think the vast majority of this monocropping agricultural Frankenstein monsters of agricultural production that we have around the world are going to fall apart without government support. You know, the amount of support that is given to these shitty crops all over the world under the pretext of we need to make sure that our people, our glorious nation has its enough supply of its goddamn wheat and soy or whatever the fuck. And all of the, the subsidies that are given are the reason that these things continue to survive. And they're depleting the soil all over the world. This is the, the soil. And this is another important point. The, the soil depletion that is happening all over the world, I think that is also related to the high time preferences that people have. People who own land are utilizing methods for production that are degrading the land and making it much harder to grow crops on it into the future. And so then they need to use much more intensive uh, farming methods and fertilizer in order to get over that. And it just continues to make uh, the soil get sicker and it makes the food worse and it continues to make people's health worse and worse and worse. And I think uh, we'll hopefully have, uh, we'll hopefully start seeing that reverse if we start moving towards more sound money. So the lesson here is that Bitcoin carnivory might be more than just a meme and an actual prediction of what happens with uh, human health and nutrition uh, when we have sound money. Could be. I mean, I, I think people, a lot of people are very addicted to their crappy carbs and they'll fight tooth and nail to keep them coming to them. But, you know, um, in the long run, I think the sort of economic prosperity that is allowed by a sound monetary system is one that is going to allow people to break out of eating all of this junk that they tell themselves about that they're eating because it's healthy and it's good. Um, if you look at menus in, from the US, uh, somebody on Twitter in, in the carnivory circles was sharing, was doing research on menus at uh, uh, American uh, restaurants and hotels around 100 years ago, the early 20th century. And it's really quite amazing, the difference. You know, the, about 70, 80, 90% of everything on the menu is just meat. And then, you know, all the rest of the stuff is practically decoration and flavoring. And, you know, um, just a little bit of uh, side items and stuff like that. But it was very clear that people understood that meat is food and food is meat. And everything else is just, you know, recreational. It's entertainment. This is very different from the world today. Most people don't eat a kilogram of meat a, a week or two pounds of meat. Most people don't get, I think, two pounds of meat a day, a week. And you should be getting at least two pounds of meat a day, I would say, or else you're probably malnourished. Um, but most people can't afford to eat that. So this is, this is essentially the life of 
unsound money. You know, you get paid this massive salary that makes you think, wow, I'm so rich because I have all this money. But as long as you're happy to spend it on bullshit like soy burgers and crappy Twinkies and junk food, then, you know, you're rich. Just keep eating crap all day and then you're rich. You have a lot of money and you can afford all the, all, all the, all the highest end quality crap <laughs> available. Whereas if you switch to, if you try and eat proper food, things become much more complicated. Thanks, Dave, for coming on. Uh, I think that we learned a very a, a set of very important lessons. Like you, we look forward to seeing how all of this plays out. I think that there's um, a lot of innovation happening at the second layer of Bitcoin. Also, on the uh, food side, if we can get more Bitcoiners to be uh, eating beef, thanks to the price going up. Yeah, we should. We should. I was also thinking we need. It's it's high time that we've uh, that we start ourselves a, uh, a Bitcoin beef barbell convention. And we need to do this at some point. I think in two thousand eighteen, just get together a bunch of um, carnivore Bitcoiners and deadlift and grill and talk Bitcoin for three days in some location where we can be separated from all the carb eaters and fiaters. <laughs> So yeah, let's get it on the calendar and let's have you back on the show when the book actually comes out in February. Everyone go on to Amazon, search for the Bitcoin standard by Saifedean. We'll put a link in the show notes, pre-order it now so that you have a first edition copy. These things are going to be rare. Okay. There's only going to be one first edition. This initial book offering is one you do not want to miss out on. Guaranteed returns. All right. Thanks guys. Thank you, Pierre. Thank you, Michael. Have a good day. To help support the show, go to noted.org and make a contribution there. We'll see you next week.